0: Women of War is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to war casualties, amputation, 19th century medical procedures, illness, corporal punishment, depression, and suicidal thoughts. It may not be suitable for all listeners, as it also contains some naughty language. In addition, this episode was... Recorded over Zoom during lockdown number 812, because our Prime Minister didn't order enough vaccines. We apologise for any audio issues. Hi, I'm Nicola. I am a nearly fully-fledged teacher who is also a historian, primarily of masculinity and crime.
1: And I'm Hannah a PhD student, Uh, I am fledged, almost, fully fledged, I don't know. Um, And I write on women, politics, nuclear bombs, protesting, 1950s, Australia, and occasionally the Australian Women's Weekly, and terrible recipes.
0: And what they said about bombs in the Australian Women's Weekly.
1: What they said about bombs, but mostly I just subtweet about terrible recipes.
0: Love that. And well, Woman Jekka, Two Women of War, a podcast where we take a deep look at one woman, or a group of women, throughout history and how they've been involved in various kinds of conflict. And this week we are looking at Clara, the most divisive Doctor Who companion of recent
1: years. You could say she's a woman of war, in in like, fandom wars,
0: maybe? Well, I mean, every every companion is the most controversial companion, but I think Clara is especially... Cause I really didn't like her at first, and then when I figured out what I was trying to do with Clara, I enjoyed her more. But I think it was just so poorly written by, he who shall not be named mm-hmm. in this series. I don't know. Did you you hated Clara at the start? No, I'm see, I as well. liked her
1: at the start because I was in like the phase uh, of I'm into manic pixie dream girls, which she kind of was. And then actually, she got hmm. annoying, and I was like, "Oh, this is why manic pixie dream girls are a problem." <laughs>
0: I don't want to shock you, but I did try and put myself off as a Manic Pixie
1: Dream Girl in high school. I am unshocked by this. Anyway, we're not actually talking about that, Clara, but we are talking about a Clara. Clara, We are talking today about Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, so she's sort of like the prequel to Vera Deacon. Clara was born Clarissa Harlow Barton on Christmas Day in 1821 to Stephen and Sarah Barton in Oxford, Massachusetts.
0: Massachusetts.
1: Massachusetts, that's not how you say it. (laughs) Her father had served in the American Revolutionary War, and her grandfather had been an early revolutionary. Clara, as as she came to be known, was the youngest of five. And by youngest, we mean young. She was 11 years younger than her nearest sibling. Don't you just love a surprise baby? Not to put her parents on blast here, but their first child was also born five months after they got married. So I just like, I feel like this maybe shows they were into each other. And they, you know, I like that. And I'm not going to be taking criticisms on this theory. So her family very much embodied the middle-class Protestant work ethic of the New England Mountains, and her family regularly involved themselves in town politics and the church. Her father was well-respected as a local farmer, captain of the militia, and a representative to the Massachusetts General Court. And her mother was an outspoken advocate for women's rights and a supporter of abolition.
2: I must have been born believing in the full right of woman to all privileges and positions which nature and justice accord her. When, as a young woman, I heard the subject discussed, it seemed simply ridiculous that any sensible, rational person should question it.
1: The family were also committed philanthropists, driven in part by the principles of universalism, a religious doctrine that believed salvation was open to all who accepted God, rather than just those who could pay for it. In the decade after Clara's birth, Stephen Barton donated over $500 a year, which is just under $15,000 US dollars today, to the community's poor and set up a house in 1831 for local destitute families using his own money.
0: Clara was close to her family, particularly her father, whom she idolised for his service to his country and his compassion, though she also felt neglected at times among the many members of the Barton clan who were all living their own lives by the time Clara was a young child. But Clara was helped with her schooling by her elder siblings as she grew up, and she learned not only to read and do basic maths, but she also learned basic bookkeeping and eagerly learned how to ride horses. She was a a quiet child, often the butt of jokes from her family, and so she became reluctant to share in case of being ridiculed. The situation was not helped by a mild lisp for which she was teased at school. Clara also struggled to articulate her needs to her family, and they often would not realize when she was uncomfortable or if she needed new clothes. So there was a bit of like, let's help others, but oops, we neglected our own child going on here, which is not even uncommon today.
1: When Clara was a teenager, a phrenologist encouraged her to train as a teacher. Phrenology a phrenologist being is a head. A head measurer. A head measurer who, who felt her head in a non-creepy way and went, this bump means you should be a teacher.
0: Interestingly, there's a Terry Pratchett character who's a retrophrenologist, and you're like, I want to be more decisive, and he hits you in the head with a hammer in the <laughs> spot that will make you more decisive.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's as legit as actual phrenology. Yeah, Teaching was a pretty common profession for women from middle-class families in America during this period, if my excessive reading of Little House on the Prairie series as a kid taught me anything. It was a respectable and reliable way to earn some money and independence as a single woman at a time when there weren't many options other than marriage. By the end of the 19th century, there were more female teachers than males. So this is a great example, I feel, of how the gendered ideas of jobs are socially constructed. So today, American teachers are mainly women, um, around 2.4 million women compared to just under 800,000 men, which is a massive difference. Uh, but originally, teachers were men, as women didn't have the access to the education. So, But after the rise of industrialization, men found they could make more money elsewhere, so the field opened up to women more and more, and then that's when it kind of became seen as a natural female profession, because women were more naturally caring and nurturing, and so therefore could raise <sighs> the young children. Oh, it's
0: my go. Sorry, I was just thinking about how much bullshit that is. Um,
1: <laughs> it's also, so much bullshit. After-
0: and a guess is also, the, of the men who are teachers, especially in the US and here, um, the majority of them would also be more likely to get principal jobs mm-hmm. and leadership roles, so they're not teachers, they're principals now, even mm-hmm. though there's more women in like, the teaching roles. Oh yeah. yeah.
1: Just as qualified as
0: men. So at 18, Clara passed all her examinations and began to teach. She began teaching at summer schools, where the students were often young boys or girls not needed on the family farm during the busy season, and her first class saw her teaching students from toddler age right up to their late teens, even though teenagers hadn't been invented yet. Though apprehensive about her own ability to teach at first, Clara was apparently a very good teacher. Rather than the more traditional disciplinarian style of teaching, Clara worked to model inquisitiveness for her students and was very open in her expectations of them. Coupled with her friendly and caring nature, ensured she earned the respect of her students and had very few difficulties with discipline. It wasn't long before Clara had slightly too many students to handle, 54." Which the way we're going with school cuts will be the the average size of a classroom in a few
1: years. The best thing for university class sizes was COVID because they had to stop making them bigger. Which is fabulous, because they they You think we can fit 60 people in this matchbox? They John Monash it. would have
0: wanted it this way.
1: In-person classes at 21, rather than they were yeah. inching towards 30. So know, that and was... it used to be 6 to 8 people. Oh, yeah. But, you know, 21's <laughs> better than 30, and 30's better than 54. Have like, you been
0: listening to my prep class, where we're doing more and less than? Because that's yeah, great Yeah, I'm great cards. at maths. You've done a really good job, buddy. High Thank five. you.
1: Can I get a we're gold star, it.
0: Miss Nicola? No, we don't do stickers. Oh.
1: I love stickers. Obviously, you could hit them back then if they were out of line, but Clara didn't tend to do that. No. Okay, so funny you should say that. Uh, Nicola doesn't know this bit because I put this in white text. So, there was one episode where Clara's style of teaching didn't work and Clara resorted to more drastic measures. So, at her second school, Clara found the students less engaged and prone to troublemaking. They were led by a group of boys who showed Clara approximately zero respect. So when she tried to contact the ringleader's mother, that got her nowhere. So one day Clara decided enough was enough. Clara called up the ringleader. Let's call him Brad. Because, you know, Brad. She called Brad to the front of the room. As he was walking up, she pulled out a riding whip from her desk and tripped him up. And she then used the whip to jerk Brad to his knees and continued to whip him until he apologized to the rest of the students for disrupting him disrupting them sorry so when brad apologized clara dismissed the students for the day telling them to go have a picnic in the nearby meadow uh this event was the only time clara used corporal punishment and it did rattle her years later she recalled quote i had learned what discipline meant and it was for all time as far as that school was concerned none ever needed more than a kindly smile hey dude stop making spitballs miss barton will whip you again like that's fucked it's just such a um, wild response to me from not using any corporal punishment to I'm going to just fucking whip you, mate. The, the yeah. one thing I'll say is the thing I still do
0: is there's, like, a group of kids misbehaving. You do have to single out the ringleader and embarrass them somehow, but mm-hmm. I tend to do that not with a whip. I'm not going to lie. I've never hit a kid That's a
1: good thing.
0: Yeah. After the accident. No, I'm um- <laughs> <So, laughs>
1: After You're not incident, even a registered teacher yet. Maybe don't joke about corporal punishment.
0: After <laughs> this incident, Clara continued to teach in the Oxford area for the next 10 years. But though she enjoyed teaching and found it suited her need for a challenge, Clara did not enjoy being paid less for her work than her male colleagues. So she wrote to the Oxford school board to demand equal pay.
2: I may sometimes be willing to teach for nothing, but if paid at all, I shall never do a man's work for less than a man's pay.
0: Which is a sentiment we should all follow. Her entreaty worked, and the board paid her the same amount they paid male teachers. As she taught, Clara saw the need for a better education for the working class children, and so in 1845 she campaigned to set up a centralised school for the children of workers. For over a year, Clara, with the help of her brother, worked to convince the town of the need for a new district schooling system, rather than the existing smaller and under-resourced neighbourhood schools. They faced extensive pushback but eventually were able to win in a town vote.
1: But Clara's finding teaching could no longer offer her the challenge it used to. So in 1850, Clara set off to Clinton in New York to study at the Clinton Liberal Institute, where she learnt French and German, philosophy, ancient history, astronomy, calculus, and analytical geometry. Though she struggled to fit in with the younger students, Clara found several close friends while at Clinton and also had a few courtships that we know little about because she kept her romantic life close to her chest. At the end of her schooling, Clara moved to New Jersey in 1852 for a new challenge. She wanted to open a public school. Local officials were sceptical, but Clara pushed on and eventually convinced both adults and children alike with her teaching. On top of teaching the basic three R's, reading, writing and arithmetic, which is clearly not spelling and has always bothered me that that's the saying, Clara provided extension for her high-achieving students, challenging them to push harder and open their minds. In one case, she assigned a group of boys Uncle Tom's Cabin, the newly published anti-slavery novel by Harriet Beecher Stowe. I'm trying to think of an equivalent book today that you could assign
0: I have actually had to think about this um there's a few like deadly honor which looks at class and um anti-aboriginal oh, yeah. race i
1: actually history. did that in high school
0: yeah um oh i did it in primary school but i just not that bit. and also even just young dark emu would be pretty controversial in some classrooms
1: yeah that would be very yeah. controversial um so anyway after reading the book the class discussed the implications it raised So basically, this sort of demonstrates Clara challenging her students to question the world around them. And her students really responded to this technique. Most of them loved her, and Clara would receive letters from old pupils until she died.
2: Their lifelong loyal allegiance to me is beyond my comprehension. Little as many of them were, trifling as the days must have seemed among a whole life of scholarship, which so many of them followed... It is a most remarkable thing that all have remembered those few months and cherished them with a loyalty that the most ambitious teacher could but prize. More and
0: more students enrolled in the Bordentown School, which quickly expanded to accommodate them, building more classrooms and hiring additional teachers. Then the school board pom- promptly fucked up by demoting Clara to a, air quotes, female teaching assistant, end air quotes, and hiring J. Kirby Burnham as the head teacher in 1854. I have to assume this is a man. Clara yes. was only paid half of what Burnham got, despite it being her who had actually developed the school and made it a success in the first place. In comparison to Clara's more modern progressive teaching style, Burnham was, an <laughs> Burnham was an old school disciplinarian, would-be dictator. He made no effort to work with Clara and the other female teachers and largely began to run the school into the ground. Clara wasn't having any of this and she left. Good for her, bad for the school. Four months after she left, Burnham was fired and the school had to do some major damage control to fix everything up that Burnham had messed up himself. But Clara wasn't coming back.
1: Clara was understandably a bit put off teaching again, feeling betrayed and undervalued. And I also feel like she really liked a challenge, and at this point she had created a public school where there wasn't one and made it a success. So even though Burnham later screwed it up, she still had you know, climbed that mountain, she'd reached the top. What was she going to do now? So, she wanted a fresh start and she moved to Washington DC in mid-1854. Washington was, uh, how should we say it, a bit backwater. Basically, for any Australians listening, it was the Canberra of its day. So it's technically the capital city, but it's a bit behind all the other cities and no one really wants to go there. (laughs) Washington's sewer system was a bit, uh, (laughs) shit pun intended, and the city didn't have a good water infrastructure. Also, slavery was still legal there, so, you know, that's never going to get a good TripAdvisor rating. Thumbs Wa- down. Washington was culturally very Southern. Clara was very not. Clara soon found work by
0: persuading her congressman to put her in a good word for her at the US Patent Office. Though very different to her work as a teacher, working as a clerk for the Patent Office was an enjoyable challenge for Clara. It also helped that she was far better paid than she was as a teacher. And by paid better, we mean better. So as a teacher at Borden Town, she was earning $250 a year. As a clerk, it was $1,400. It was also surprising. She was paid the same wage as male clerks, um, which is a bit weird because the culture of the patent office itself was not favorable for women. In 1855, Samuel T. Sugart – why do Americans always have those kind of names? Samuel T. Sugart. Took over as as acting commissioner of the Patent Office and felt that women clerks were taking work from the hardworking, respectable men. In mid-1855, Clara was demoted to a copyist, which was paid abysmally if they got paid at all. So copyists were paid based on the work they did, and then Sugart refused to give the women any work to do. So Clara actually did not get paid – at all from July to August 1855. Many of her male co-workers and the senior bureaucrats did not believe a woman should be working in an office. To add, this, add to this, Clara herself, who knew her worth and was confident in her abilities. So of course her male colleagues decided she was a bitch. Add in also her friendship with the returning office commissioner, Charles Manson, not that Charles Manson, unknown relation, which her colleagues also saw as an unfair advantage over them.
1: Charles Mason was the office commissioner. Oh, I got excited. That's okay. I don't think you should get excited about Charles Manson. Watch but, me. Look you know, on. I, I won't judge. Yeah. In 1857, it became very clear that she did not, in fact, have any advantage over male clerks. When her congressman was not re-elected, Clara lost her sponsor. The new president, James Buchanan Barnes, also known as the Winter Soldier and love of Captain America's life, don't at me, wanted to reward his supporters with jobs in government. Buchanan also believed that anyone with a government job should be completely loyal to him. That's actually a little bit, uh, how you say, uh, what the fuck? Yeah, that's a little bit, uh, mm, mm, no. Buchanan also supported slavery. That's uh, also uh, how you say, um, oh yeah, what the fuck? Yeah, that's also mm, not so good, Buchanan. Uh, Clara did not support slavery. So, basically, when Mason who was Clara's sponsor, resigned on the 4th of August 1857, Clara lost any remaining protection from the higher-ups. In October, she was fired. Clara moved back to Oxford. She struggled to find her feet back in her hometown, moving listlessly from job to job and battling depression. Without a sense of purpose or a goal to, wo- goal to work towards, Clara struggled.
2: I must not rust much longer. I-, I need to push out and do something, somewhere, or anything, anywhere.
1: She didn't want to return to teaching, but government jobs were generally not very welcoming to women, and so Clara struggled to find a permanent government job. Anyway, writing to her nephew, Clara vented about the difficulties of finding work as a woman.
2: When you have pictured my past life and habits and training for the past number of years, you will forgive such an aspiration in me. Were you in my place, you would feel it too, and wish and pine and fret in your cage as I do... But the very gentlemen who have the power could only know for twenty-four hours all that oppresses and gnaws at my peace. They could offer me something to do in accordance with my old habits and capabilities before I am a day older. But they will never know, and I shall always be oppressed, no doubt. I am naturally business-like, and habit has made me just as much so as a man. And were I a man, I would never do a fourpenny business. I should be perfectly happy today if. Someone would tell me that my desk and salary were waiting for me, that once more I had something to do that was something.
1: During this period, Clara struggled with both her physical and mental health, often feeling weak and listless and battling both depression and suicidal thoughts. She spent several months coalescing with an acquaintance, where she felt more at home than she did with her own family. Things turned around in November 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was elected and Clara was called back to the patent office, arriving in December and picking up life again in Washington as though she had never left.
0: The political situation in Washington DC was tense and Clara felt her position was unstable. She sought out a new patron who could support her if things again turned sour. She approached Henry Wilson, the Senator from Massachusetts, which was her home state. Henry and Clara immediately hit it off and he became a valuable support for her. In December 1860, South Carolina seceded from the Union. Shortly afterwards, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia and Louisiana followed, then Texas and Virginia. Early in 1861, South Carolina authorities demanded that the U.S. Army leave their stations at Charleston Harbor. The Army did not leave. On February 8, 1861, the Confederate States of America was formed. On April 12, 1861, the South Carolina Militia attacked the United States Army, which was stationed at Fort Sumter. The militia forced the U.S. Army to surrender, and thus the American Civil War began. When Clara heard of the Confederate forces attacking Fort Sumter, she wrote to her cousin of her indignation at the attitude many took towards the Union.
2: Nothing is or has been more common than to see little spruce clerks and even boys strutting about the streets and asserting that we had no government it merely amounted to a compact but had no strength i have listened to harangues of this nature in the past few months till my very brain whirled, and now from the bottom of my heart i pray that the thing may be tested may the business be taken in hand and proved not if we have a government but that we have one
0: a week after Fort Sumter, troops of the 6th Massachusetts Regiment were changing trains at Baltimore on their way to Washington City when they were accosted by a group of secessionist sympathizers. The secessionists threw paving stones and other items at the regiment, who escalated the situation by using their bayonets, which are large knives, let's be, let's remind people here, and rifle butts to subdue their attackers. This brought more people into the skirmish, and soon the crowd was in- turning increasingly riotous and violent. The regiment fired onto the crowd with their muskets, resulting in twelve civilian and four Union soldiers' deaths. Clara was
2: horrified at this turn of events. The Baltimore riots show that the darkest page of our country's history is now being written in the lines of blood.
1: I mean that's justified horror, I feel. Yeah. Like, you're not gonna de escalate anything with a bayonet. That's, well, that's not a, that's not a weapon of de escalation. We all know about the police in America and the military's
0: ability to de escalate things mm. in the I mean, we don't have a good one here either. Moving on. Mm -hmm. Clara quickly visited the regiment at Senate chambers where they had been quartered and set about finding food and supplies for them. The lack of provisions provided for the regiment proved to Clara that the government was not doing enough to provide for its troops and she was increasingly convinced of
1: the military's incompetence. So first, let's back up a minute. Now, depending on who you ask, the Civil War was fought for a variety of reasons. Some say it was fought for, fought for states' rights. Some may say it was a battle against Northern aggression. Those people are quite probably racist rednecks. Though you can't actually ever boil down a conflict into one clear motivation... The Civil it was slavery. War, it, was, it was largely an issue of slavery, no matter which slavery. way you look at it. So the Northern states were increasingly against admitting new states to the Union as slave states, uh, believing that slavery was against the ideals of liberty put forward by the Founding Fathers, such as that whole, quote, all men are created equal bit, which was hidden in the fine print right at the, uh, where was it again? Oh, yeah, the beginning of the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. So the Southern which, States, on which, the other Which, you hand, know, it was written by Thomas Jefferson, who was not only a slave owner,
0: but a r- rapist yeah, of slaves. Yeah. 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 yep, 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 yep.
1: Uh, the southern states, on the other hand, really enjoyed all that sweet, sweet money they made by not paying their labourers, and so convinced themselves that the Bible said it was okay. Which the Bible says very, a lot of things. Very American. Uh, they also really, really wanted to expand slavery westward into all those uncharted lands. Uncharted by white people. Um, but that's another story. So slavery pretty much underpinned all the other tensions that led to the war. So... You know, you could say it's for economic reasons, but slavery was under the economic reasons because the Southern economy was built on slavery and the Northern economy wasn't and so that was the tension there. Eli Whitney has a lot to answer for. I don't know who that is.
0: I believe he invented the cotton gin, which made it oh, easier Oh, that, like, yeah, yep. that guy. Yep. As, as far as I know, though, he actually invented it like, this will make things easier and we won't have to have slaves.
1: <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh, Eli. Um, so yeah, so basically, while the North may not have set out to fight for the abolition of slavery from the beginning of the war, slavery, when and where it would be legal, was at the heart of the conflict.
0: Not long after South Carolina began their succession trend, the hottest thing in, in the country at that point, the Confederate States quickly began to build up an army, which was 60,000 men strong by April. In comparison, the North was utterly failing to mobilize troops. By the fall of Fort Sumter, the Union was still desperately trying to encourage men to sign up and fight. Early soldiers came from state militias since the National Standing Army only had about 16,000 men at the beginning of the 1860s. Militia men were also very unevenly trained, depending on what state they came from. I mean, all the gun-happy states are in the South, so let's assume that pattern goes all the way back to then as well. Probably. Initially, Lincoln called for 75,000 militia men to serve a 90-day enlistment for the Union Army, but soon realized that that would not be enough to stop the Confederacy. So he called instead for 42,000 volunteers to serve a three-year enlistment with the Army. He also wanted to add 23,000 more regular soldiers to the Army and increase the Navy by 18,000.
1: In the Navy.
0: Come on, protect the motherland! Regiments of both volunteers and regular soldiers were organised by locale, with friends, relatives, and neighbours serving together.
1: Though slow off the mark, soon the Union had more troops than they could supply. Where the Federal Government couldn't provide the needed munitions and uniforms, Federal Governments not being able to provide for their citizens? What is this? (laughs) Where the federal government couldn't provide the needed munitions and uniforms, states who had the money stepped in, and it kind of became a competition for who could provide the best supplies. Which was great for getting plenty of uniforms, less good for getting uniforms that actually matched and had this cohesive look for the entire Union side. Which might seem like, you know, a minor problem of the aesthetic, uh, until you realize that a clear uniform makes it very easy to see who was on your side in the heat of battle and who you shouldn't bayonet As with most wars, neither the Union or the Confederacy had any idea of the scale of the impending conflict when they began building their armies. So as battle began and the numbers of casualties grew rapidly, both sides were ill-equipped to handle the wounded. Not only were there more casualties than the small medical teams could handle, but the injuries were gruesome. The bullets used in the war were large and slow, which meant that they tore through flesh and bone as cleanly as a bread knife cuts through a fine ribeye steak. Medicine was definitely not equipped to deal with such devastating injuries, especially not at the speed required to save all the men coming into the field hospitals. And so doctors frequently treated gunshot wounds with amputation. Amputation with no anesthetic except whatever booze you could keep down to keep you drunk. Amputation with no anesthetic and limited knowledge of our infections which were transmitted. Amputation that could easily lead to blood loss or infection. Also, what with the blood and guts everywhere, dysentery was also waving its merry little hand for attention. The army military units could not cope with the scale of disaster.
0: Also, like to jump on that, um they the germ theory of disease hadn't quite taken hold yet as well. Mm. So infection everywhere. It's still
1: miasma time, I think, isn't it? It is still miasma time. Yeah. It is where the, the idea the is that, that it's the the smell, bad smells cause disease. Which yeah. I love I love as a historical theory because It's close it makes it makes so much sense where it's coming from. Like yeah. You're so close. You almost got there. And often it worked because when they flushed
0: the sewers of London to get rid of the smell, which mm-hmm. they thought was causing cholera, it also meant all the sewage lines were cleared out into the Thames, mm-hmm. which meant all the water coming through the drinking taps was clean. So it did technically get rid of cholera for a little while in some areas. Yep. But right, so like, right idea, wrong reasons. Yep. yep. Back to America. So someone had to step in and sort things out. First came the Women's Central Association of Relief, the Waka, which formed in New York on april twenty fifth and eighteen sixty one, only a couple of weeks after the outbreak of war. In the early weeks of the war, as men signed up to fight across the country, American women began sending food and clothing to the army. The issue was this was very unorganized and more often misguided than helpful, like my grandma making that blue scarf for a soldier in Afghanistan.
1: I actually did think of that little anecdote as I was writing this bit.
0: So, Dr Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman to earn a medical degree in the U.S., formed the Wakar to better organise relief efforts, creating a system for distributing supplies. It wasn't long, however, before a group of men decided these women didn't have the capacity in their small female vaginas to undertake the (laughs) large-scale planning and organisation necessary to effectively run relief efforts. And so in May 1861, inspired by the British Sanitary Commission of the Crimean War fought a decade earlier, which I'm assuming involved Florence Nightingale and her polar charts,
1: um, yeah, some clergymen,
0: yeah, some clergymen, intellectuals, and businessmen formed the US Sanitary Commission, which subsumed the Wuqah.
1: In the words of Charles Still Still wrote I'm the, not concerned whether we get his name right, because I don't like him. Okay. Charles Still,
0: who wrote the history of the Sanitary Commission in 1866, the women of the Wuqah were full of zeal and enthusiasm in the cause, but with a very imperfect idea of organization. I guess it'll be an extra issue of you don't know where the soldiers are going. At least with like later in the war, when you know the battlefields are more set up. By this point, it's just sort of like I heard they're going towards Steve's house. I don't know. Fredericksburg, America. yeah. Like Fredericksburg. it. It is a mess at this stage. That's, yeah, there's sort of a double-edged sword here of like they're all organ- they're trying to get organized, but the army isn't organized either. Anyway, but, all, but also like
1: the women's. Central Association of Relief, they were organized, like they were doing hella organizing, and then yeah, others came in, they're like, you don't know what you're doing, Love, we'll take over for you.
0: Thanks, sugar tits. Just go bake a cake. The Sanitary Commission set up as an advisory body to the Federal Government and the US Army Medical Department, and set about raising funds for medical supplies as well as more general supplies like food and clothes, which you often need in a war.
1: Generally, unless, I don't know, ancient Sparta. Get some oil on ya, beautiful. The scale of the war, however, meant that even the sanitary commission struggled to cope. Oh, those poor little men trying to organise your little committee.
0: Oh, hand that over, lovely. We'll take care of it for you. i should ya. just
1: bake a cake. Hm. Before long, over seventy-five thousand troops were stationed in Washington alone. Can I pause you there for a second and yeah. just
0: say, like, in terms of scale, sixty thousand Australians died in World War One. So this is seventy five thousand dudes just hanging out. So this war is yeah. gonna have appalling levels of casualties.
1: It's like it's a good trick question for people with which war did the most Americans die in because and it's, it's the war. American Civil War, because everyone that died was American pretty much.
0: Or they were a slave loving redneck, which is worse. Yeah. So, Slavery loving redneck, yeah.
1: Like the American War the American Civil War absolutely devastating in America. All wars devastating. But you know what's really cool though? There's um
0: there's video footage of U.S. Civil War veterans because they were yeah, still no. alive in like World One. Yeah,
1: what side were you on, Daddy? Yeah, anyway. Also, this is totally unrelated, but they had submarines in the American Civil War. Oh, that fucked me which up so truly much. Truly terrifies no. me. No. It's submarines, You've got to no. be like you're no. literally in a tin can in the 1860s in a submarine. I'm actually just like, no.
0: like thinking about it. Like, can we no. actually
1: please move on? So, okay, back to uh, the Civil War, right? So There were 75,000 troops stationed in Washington City alone, so Clara began visiting the camps to do what she could to fill the gaps left by the army and the sanitary commission. I think Clara just wanted to be helpful, like that was her whole thing. She wanted to do something. Maybe she was like um, me, she just likes men in uniform. Maybe she was looking for the all, army chaplains. Like ooh, All what that, can we get I going mean, here? you know. She didn't talk about uh, any romantic entanglements much in her diary, so we don't know, so maybe. So she brought with her Dr. Sidney, her friend from the post office, who both provided medical advice and all pro- also protected Clara's reputation as a single woman walking around an army camp. Barton wrote to her friends to ask for supplies, and soon she had an informal network of people sending her support. Clara's informal network also became more formal as she began distributing supplies collected by the Ladies Relief Committee of Worcester. I think. Massachusetts. Worcester? Worcester, I don't know. It's one of I those weird English terms,
0: and we this is an American. They're, they're but it like, would have come. It would have come it's from like it would been...
1: Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah. Like I think in England it would be Worcester. I don't know. Anyway, they pronounce things weird.
2: Worcester, Massachusetts.
1: For Clara, this was all an exciting challenge.
2: I don't know how long it has been since my ear has been free from the roll of a drum. It is the music I sleep by, and I love it.
1: In early June, many began leaving the city as an attack appeared increasingly imminent. Clara, however, refused to leave.
2: I will remain here while anyone remains and do whatever comes to my hand. I may be compelled to face danger, but never fear it. And while our soldiers can stand and fight, I can stand and feed and nurse them.
1: Then, on July 21st, 1861, the Battle of Bull Run, not to be confused with the Battle of Bullochore, saw the first major full-scale confrontation of the Civil War. Though it was a Confederate victory that forced the Union forces into a scrambled retreat, the Battle of Bull Run brought home to both sides how devastating the war would be. Around 28,000 Union soldiers and 32,000 Confederates fought at Bull Run, most of these on both sides green and untested and barely even trained. The casualty is numbered in the thousands, and the lack of both supplies and medical training became quickly apparent. Some Union wounded were taken to the Patent Office for medical care due to the lack of space elsewhere and Clara came face to face with the horrors of the war.
0: So yeah like twenty eight thousand on one side, thirty thousand on the other, thirty two plus twenty eight is sixty and then you add on the three zeros, that's sixty thousand. So the entire casualty number of Australians in World War One is at one makes up the entire force of mm-hmm. one battle. On both yep. sides. Yep. Clara was quickly running out of room for her activities. She was inundated with supplies from tobacco and whiskey to honey, lemons, and soap. She had already filled up her room at her boarding house with supplies, and then quickly began filling up rented warehouse spaces. The overwhelming number of donations, however, proved to Clara that these were not the items most needed. Oh, remember when we wrote that food drive and like. People would, oh, you'd be like, yeah. no two minute noodles and no canned soup. And people, people I know with a lot of money would come around and be like, here, I got these out of my cupboard for you. And it would just be two minute noodles. And I'd be like, yeah. thank you. Someone I know who like works three jobs and can't afford <laughs> like rent most weeks brought over like a whole bunch of stuff I needed. But this, this two minute noodle pack, oh, you've, you've made the difference.
1: I it's love the shame. idea of Clara just like drowning in lemons. Like she's just like got <laughs> a whole
0: lemon room, and she's like, "There's too
1: many lemons.
2: What well, am I going to fair, do?"
0: I think you can use lemon as a as like a bit of a disinfectant, and also it's good to stop scurvy. And that's usually oh, yeah. been a
2: there's just lemon. Lemons are
0: helpful, but I don't know much about the American-based wars because of reasons. But um, as we all know, I'm very allergic to American people. I I break it in a rash if I'm near, mm, near anybody. I've seen it. Yeah, um, it's, it's horrible. Not pretty. But Every war, you're using the lessons you learned in the last war to fight it. And that's why so many of the troops at Suvla Bay on the Dardanelles and Gallipoli were inoculated against cholera before Mm -hmm. they landed, which meant they were inoculated against cholera. Great. However, it meant they were suffering the side effects of that inoculation when they landed, so they were vomiting everywhere and getting really sick. That's badly planned. Um, So I'm wondering if maybe there was an issue in a previous war the Yanks have fought in regarding lemons, like maybe scurvy or something? Yeah, like that would check out. Yeah, I don't know. It could also just be everyone. Had, it's like this time of year, everyone just got lemons. It's like, do yeah. you want some lemons? It's like in summer, like, do you want some zucchini?
1: No, fuck your zucchini. I don't want All it. All these people are just like, I want to help, but my lemon tree is going mad, so take yeah. my lemons. And Clara's like, please, no more lemons. I okay, I can wait, only wait. make so much lemonade.
0: Wait, wait, wait. The overwhelming number of donations, however, proved to Clara that these were not the items most needed. Nor was this work the most she could do. Washington hospitals were no longer lacking supplies as they had earlier in the war, and now there were plenty of women wanting to help nurse the wounded in the cities. Clara began travelling with her supplies to meet incoming ships and trains of wounded, and realised how important getting to the injured men quickly could be. Clara wanted to go to the front line, where she could help more directly by helping the diseased and wounded soldiers where
1: and when they needed her. So, Clara went to the head of the Quartermaster Depot of the District of Columbia. Colonel Daniel H. Rocker, always got to have that middle initial there, to tell him that she had three warehouses full of supplies, and would it maybe be alright with him if she took them to the front? Rucker agreed after some persuasion, and gave Clara permission to take government transportation to a union depot in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Clara distributed supplies, then returned to Washington to begin collecting more. On the 9th of August 1862, Union and Confederate forces fought in the Battle of Cedar Mountain, near Culpeper, Virginia, which resulted in nearly 2,000 Union casualties. Clara went there immediately when she heard, not bothering to get new passes and instead using her old pass that was only meant to allow passage to an unengaged army and camp, not an army in the midst of battle. There, while distributing distributing medical supplies, Clara began to help out in the field hospital caring for the wounded, particularly the amputees, and cleaning the blood-covered
2: floors. Suffering lay on every side. Our ample stores diminished with a rapidity truly appalling when we looked upon so many brave and noble patriots, needing everything and possessing nothing. Would you know how our men bear their sufferings? Oh, how I wish I had words to tell you of all the patience, the nobility of soul, the resignation, and bravery of our gallant troops."
1: Clara realized the inadequacy of the army medical unit, which lacked supplies, training, and manpower. It was also in Culpeper that Clara became convinced of the need for impartiality in army medicine when she visited a hospital of wounded Confederate prisoners that had been left uncared for while Union casualties were treated. Clara handed out whatever she could to ease their misery and decided that the Union did not have a monopoly on pain or suffering.
0: Do you guys want a lemon?
1: (laughs) I've got so many lemons, please! (sighs) Clara's experience in Culpepper convinced her that her time could be better spent caring for the wounded and helping out in the military hospital, rather than collecting more lemons. She took a leave of absence from the patent office at half pay and began working with the Union Army. So she still got paid from the patent office the entire time, which is crazy to me.
0: Not long after Clara began this work, over 65,000 Union soldiers confronted the Confederate army at Bull Run for the second time, on August 29, 1862, in the Second Battle of Manassas. Again, the battle resulted in a Confederate victory and nearly 16,000 Union casualties. The scale of dead and wounded was almost unimaginable. After the battle ended, the field lay covered with corpses and wounded soldiers left there without anyone to move them even as they cried out for help. The Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, that's a very British name.
1: Hello, I'm And Edwin. he doesn't have a middle initial, so. Yeah, the you know. middle initial
0: sells him as a yank. yeah. I'm sh- I'm, he's shady. Yeah. <laughs> Issued a call for volunteer nurses to help manage the devastation. Washington City no- newspapers ran the call and hotel bulletin boards put up advertisements for civilian nurses and surgeons to aid the treatment of the bull run wounded. Clara, unsurprisingly, took up the challenge and made her way to Fairfax Station where many wounded had been transported. It was a horrific scene that greeted her when she alighted from the train. It was chaotic, wounded men groaning all around her with frantic surgeons amputating limbs as fast as they could soar. Clara froze, but not for long. No other relief workers had yet arrived and there were things to do. Clara began with simple tasks, changing bandages, creating slings, applying cold compresses and using tourniquets, which I don't think are recommended for use anymore. Clara and most of the nurses also provided important emotional support for the wounded and dying, listening to them and reassuring them they would be okay, even though in many cases they would not be.
1: Yeah, there's one anecdote that Clara related where she was like talking to this kid and she's like, you're going to be great, you're going to be fine, you'll see, and then he died. Like, Clara worked through the night and the next day, as she went from crisis to crisis. The numbers were overwhelming and Clara often found herself tending to someone she knew, often former students,
2: which would be brutal. It is not a light thing to pick up a shattered arm to bind and sling it and find the other suddenly thrown across your neck in recognition. Oh, what a place to meet an old-time friend.
1: Again, it comes back to just the devastation of a civil war where it's like fighting people you know or neighbours or whatever. Clara didn't sleep and didn't eat, giving her own food to the wounded men. It was disheartening work trying to stem the tide of misery and seeing no end in sight. Shots rang out in the hills around them as small pockets of Union and Confederate rebels fought on, adding even more urgency to the situation. Two of her helpers left, unable to cope with the conditions. On the second day Clara was there, another small battle took place at Chantilly, bringing in more wounded, and the threat that the Confederates would arrive at any moment grew. At one point, a Union officer rode into camp and asked Clara if she could ride bareback. When she replied that she could, he shouted back, then you can risk another hour before she needed to possibly flee. By the skin of her teeth, Clara and Reverend Wells, the only other helper who had stayed, loaded the last wounded man onto the train at 5pm on Tuesday afternoon, jumping aboard themselves just as rebel Confederate cavalrymen galloped into the camp. After
0: the Second Battle of Manassas, while the Union Army retreated to Washington to recoup, the Confederates launched an attack to further weaken Union morality. Under General Robert E. Lee, the Confederate Army planned to take advantage of what Lee believed was a disjointed, disorganized, and demoralized Union by invading Maryland in September 1862 with around 70,000 Confederate troops. My accent's just going everywhere today. Under major. This is
1: Gen- why I didn't get you to voice Clara.
0: Yeah. Under Major General George B. McCle- McClellan, yeah, you know he's a Yank, listen to that middle initial, the Union mustered yeah. around 80,000 men to rebuff the invasion. Clara learned about the Confederacy's plans and foresaw the scale of loss that could, would result from any battles. Again, Clara appealed to General Rucker, who was the head of the Quartermaster Depot, for a pass to travel to Maryland and a wagon to get there. Clara headed for Harpers Ferry. Harpers Ferry was strategically located on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and was devastated by the Civil War, changing hands constantly between the Union and the
1: Confederates as both fought to maintain control of the railway. In all of Harpers the wars, Ferry being a... Uh... A Harper's Ferry being a, like, suburb and not just
0: a ferry. Now, I was actually wondering that because there's another river port where it was, like, constantly changing mm. hands. But this is a point until after World War Two, from about this war through to World War II, he, he who controls the railways controls the war. Like it's oh, hell yeah in, in basically every major war through this period. Even the Russian Civil War, they're fighting for control of the railways. Yep. And Trotsky's use of the railways is one of the key things that clinched it. I've got Trotsky on my mind right now. You'll find out why later. Alright, so Clara made an educated guess that Harper's Ferry would be crucial in the coming confrontation, and that would be where she was needed most. And she was proven tragically correct.
1: On Sunday the 14th of September, Clara set off with her assistant to Harper's Ferry, carrying canned foods, lanterns, and bandages. And probably some lemons. (laughs) On their journey, they passed through battlefields, where Clara would stop to check for any unrecovered wounded soldiers. They reached the Army of the Potomac, which was the main Union army in the east, near Sharpsburg, Maryland, on September 16th. Clara noted that there was a, quote, impending sense of gloom, end quote, in the air, but she was where she wanted to be, at the site of an impending battle, where any wounded would be in her hands as soon as possible.
2: If my countrymen are to suffer, my place is with them. My northern brothers are here in arms, danger and death staring them in the face, and I cannot leave them.
1: And that's where we're going to leave Clara. Newly arrived at the war front, convinced of her purpose, confident in her abilities, and pleased she had managed to convince the army of her worth. But as trying as it had been up to this point, there was far more in store for Clara as the civil war raged on. I do
0: want to point out there's a great episode of the Medical History Podcast Soul Bones which talks about Angel's Glow which was something that occurred in certain battlefields during the Civil War. Or Was it the Revolutionary War? I don't know. Let me just double check that. Angel. Well, what is it? What what's Angel's Glow? It's very interesting. It's a bacteria. Um, Ooh. But yeah, it's um it was from the Civil War and they do an episode on it. It's very interesting. Uh, and because it was given this mystical. Bent because I didn't know what it was, but it was some Ooh. kind of fungal or bacterial um, infection. But it actually like helped them. It was like an antibacterial.
1: Clara- I'm really bad. Clara well. would later be named the Angel of the Battlefield, so that's like a fun little connect there. There you go, angels glow. Now, these idea of angels
0: appearing on the battlefield again continues through into World War One at least. <laughs> so, and Florence Nightingale was the Lady with the Lamp. So even though you don't have yeah. this angel association, it's still an association with light.
1: Yeah, definitely. And salmon feminine art. I mean, nurses
0: undervalued, big role. We we both know how undervalued nurses are. So, <laughs> now nah, um yeah, actually shout out to any of our listeners who are working in the medical field, especially in Australia right now. It's incredibly frustrating. Oh hell um, yeah! Not being able to give best care to people because your governments are inept. And after shout the- out to the nurse did- who
1: gave me my first jab the other day. Shout out to the A-plus nurse who got my
0: vaccinations.
1: I didn't get a lollipop though, so I'm like, I would like to
0: complain. I've never gotten a lollipop from vaccine. The closest I remember is when I was in prep and I was first in line to get the meningococcal vaccine, and I was super excited, so I was at the head of the line. And you walked in, and they held a plate of jelly beans in front of you and pick a color. And I was like blue, but the thing they wanted to do was distract you. So you'd look left, and then mm. they would jab you in your right arm, or you'd look right, and they would jab you in your left. Because I was like, I was like, I want a blue one. All right, what's going on over here? <laughs> one of my clearest <laughs> early memories is seeing that needle go into my arm, and that's um, a big needle. Oh, who cares? I really like vaccines, though. So, um, as we both know, so Hannah, do you have any resources to recommend if people want to learn more about the Civil War before our episode in a fortnight?
1: No. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: don't ask me hard questions without prompting.
0: Ben um, um, Burns did do a documentary on the Civil War. It's very long, and I tried to watch a bit, and I fell asleep because he's the no. guy who like it's just like no. people reading no. over pictures, moving slowly, and like no. that's no. not There's what I there is, is a
1: couple of good podcasts um, out there on the Civil War. I have them written down somewhere else, so I will add them in our show notes. Yeah, uh, and that. That's a much nicer way than a Ken Burns documentary to get up to date on what's going on.
0: Look, but Ken Burns is an artist and a great researcher in his own way. It's just unfortunately, I find, I've been listening to this American-run podcast on the Russian history actually right now, and it's the same thing with Ken Burns. It's just this one guy talking, and Mm. it's like, I need more. I need something tasty.
1: I feel like the American Civil War, too, is one of those ones where everyone gets obsessed with battlefields and dates and the timing of when Mm. the soldiers saw each other across the battlefield and stuff and I'm like, look, that's cool. It's not the most interesting bit. What was the soldier feeling? What did that soldier think? Not what time did he wake up in the morning? Well, anyway, we've completely rambled because we're, we're still not used to finishing an episode in Two parts, and we're like, how do we finish? I mean, we probably we're not done have, yet. We could have made
0: Lenny Reef in style two parts, but then it would have just been four hours and me screaming into a microphone about how much I hate Yeah, it.
1: we wanted to get that done. But there's a lot happening with Clara. Mm. So much is going to happen. We're, 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 we're kind of halfway. We're not even really halfway. You've got to come back in a fortnight.
0: Whoa, yeah. we're halfway there. Whoa, lemon on a chair. <laughs> yeah, lots of lemons. <laughs>
1: Then why is the lemon on a chair? Lemon on a chair, take my hand and we'll make it us. Anyway. Thank you to the wonderful Vanessa, our one of our number one A-plus first starting first listening. That's it. First listening people. My beloved who, former roommate. Who, who <laughs> loved us from the very beginning and we love her back immensely, who's going to be an amazing lawyer one day. Woo! Thank Woo. you to Vanessa for voicing Clara. This episode and in the next one, and making time in her very busy schedule to fit this in. She's in
0: lockdown too. She's got
1: time. Time and lockdown are two different things. I know. Things. You're, yeah, and on that note. Thank you for listening. I have been. <laughs> Thank Nicola. you for listening. We'll see you in a fortnight with the rest of Clara's life. She has life. been
0: Hannah, I have been Nicola. Goodbye.
1: Bye.